The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. So we are looking at the issue of church government or polity and the question uh, over this entire chapter that Grudem wrote, uh, chapter 47 in Systematic Theology, is how should a church be governed and how should church officers be chosen and should women serve as pastors of churches? Those are the three questions he puts across this chapter. Now, I want to just give you a word of kind of personal insight about this whole topic. Um, and actually, I was talking to Dave Fullrod about this today. Uh, because he expressed an interest in polity and church government. They desire at some point to be church planters. And he's very wise in circling this as, an, as a key issue to learn about. He said that it was only in a Baptist history class that they even touched lightly on these topics. Well, that's more than I got. I went to Gordon-Conwell Seminary to get my master's degree, and that's an interdenominational seminary. They didn't touch on this at all. It never even got any mention. We never even discussed it. Uh, I don't know why. It could be that they didn't want to be controversial because some were Presbyterians and others Baptists and, and all different ones, and they just want to get to it. But I would think that that would make it an even more fertile and urgent issue. I don't know why. I, can't, I can only guess at the reasons. I'm just telling you it's true. We never really focused on these questions that you're studying tonight. Um, and to me, uh, I didn't look on it as an important issue, therefore. It really isn't that important how the church is governed and all that. So I thought until I got to be pastor of this church. And I started realizing this is incredibly important. It's really important what people are leading the church and how they're chosen and what qualifications they have and do they meet those qualifications and how are they held accountable and, and how that whole thing works ends up being really, at the practical level, maybe one of the most important things that's happening in the church. And because it's that important, uh, we've looked at our constitution and bylaws and just see de deficiencies in it. And so it's, it, it, there's a, a reason why I skipped the whole section on soteriology in Grudem's uh, systematic theology and jumped ahead so that we could begin discussing these things. And among the deacons and the ministerial staff right now, uh, as we look at 2007, as we're making goals for the upcoming year, one of the things we're going to look at is resolving, uh, at least uh, with during my pastorate here, in a final way, um, the questions of polity. Uh, how will the church be governed? And making sure our document, our constitution and bylaws, reflects accurately the biblical convictions that we have. Right now, um, our church constitution and bylaws, there, there are like at least four, maybe five points of power or authority, and it's unclear how they relate to one another. You've got the senior pastor slash ministerial staff, You've got the uh, deacons, you've got the committees, you've got something called the church council, and then you've got the congregation as a whole. That's five. I'm not counting trustees because I think most people recognize them as not having really decision-making authority, but they just can sign documents and things like that. Those are five. And how do they relate to each other? Specifically, let's say, how do the committees relate to the leadership of the ministerial staff? You know, how do the deacons relate to that? How does it all fit together? It's very unclear. Um, and if you read the actual statements in our Constitution and bylaws, it becomes even more uh, difficult because there was an ethos or a spirit behind the document, I think generally suspicious of leadership. And so everything had to go back to the congregation. 
So committees were accountable not to the ministerial staff, but to the congregation. Well, I don't know what that means. I, I believe that, that, that they are, that all of us are ultimately accountable. But how does that work out practically? Do you folks want to be called in with every decision the committee or ministerial staff makes? I would say you don't. How much time do you want to spend here, friends? I mean, it's a nice place. But, I mean, do you really want to be called in for all of it? We'll talk about pure democracy and all that, but it really is very inefficient, isn't it? So, for me, this is a big question. And so we have set a goal in 2007 um, that we're going to resolve it. We're going to look at it, and we're going to uh, address it. We do not, ministerial staff, the deacons, do not have the authority to change our Constitution bylaws, and I don't think we should have that authority. The church alone has that authority. But for me, the way I look at it is that there's certain steps we have to go through. And this is a sub-part of one of the steps. I recognize that I am not speaking to a sizable percentage of First Baptist Church tonight. You guys are wonderful people, but look around, okay? All right? We need more people than this to hear this kind of teaching before we change our Constitution and bylaws, right? But uh, I don't mind that you take these sheets and go and talk about them uh, with other people and begin heightening the awareness. We're trying to discern um, what's the best forum for getting this kind of teaching out. You know, should I preach on Sunday morning about polity? I don't know. I mean, think about if you're a visitor to a church and you're coming in listening to polity sermons, you know. I don't know. I mean, I could. it would take the, the uh, limits of my homiletical, my proclamation skill to make that really interesting and engaging, okay? So I, you know, I, I've thought about it. At any rate, we do want to teach. We want people to understand what the Bible says about this. And so uh, this course is part of that. So learn well and, uh, you know, study. Take these things back to the scriptures and, and learn about it. And then when the time comes, you'll be able to share with other church members, you know, why we're looking at these changes, how they're going to work. Okay. All right. Well, let's uh, let's do a little review from last time. We're talking about uh, church government or polity. There are a variety of church government models we talked about. Anybody remember what they were? See, they're gone now off the sheet. See, this is like a final exam here. What are they? Huh? Presbyterian was one of them. That's right. The Episcopalian slash Roman Catholic slash Methodist slash all that. That's top-down hierarchical structure. Okay. Congregational slash Baptist slash independent. Exactly. That's about it. Those three. Um, you know, and their flavors or varieties of them, Presbyterian being in a system of interlocking courts, which has vested authority from the local congregations to make decisions on behalf of the congregations. That's the Presbyterian system. You know, and then the others are top-down, hierarchical, with some body at the top, the Pope, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the King of England or Queen of England or whatever. I mean, I don't know what the, how the Anglican Church were. I think, I think it's still the case that the King or Queen is the head of that church, humanly speaking. Isn't that interesting? But uh, at any rate, um, you know, and then you've got the Episcopalian versions over on this side of the uh, Atlantic Ocean. Anyway, those are various ones. The key question we're asking here is, does, is the Bible clear about church government? And uh, we, we basically teach the clarity of Scripture, what's called the perspicuity of Scripture. The Scripture is clear enough. We would not put on the Scripture a flaw, say, if only God had been clearer on, this, on that point. Um, so the scripture doesn't need fixing, but uh, we just need to understand historically there have been divisions and disagreements over church polity. And I think one of the reasons is that this is not one of those major doctrines so that unlike, let's say, how a soul gets made right before Almighty God before Judgment Day, in which you have multiple different ways of being taught about that, I mean, from the beginning of the Bible right through the end, whether the sacrificial system or prophecies or straight statements in Romans or, you know, 
five or six different major types of communication of the analogy of what Jesus accomplished at the cross. There's no lack of information of what happened when Jesus died on the cross. Clearly, a major doctrine, we would have to say the major doctrine in the Bible, how sinners get made right with a holy God. That's the center of it all. So it doesn't surprise us that there's ample information about that in the Bible. Uh, and thus, there's plenty of information. I'm, I'm telling you, on any major heading of systematic theology, there's always more information than you thought there was. The Bible has more to say than you thought. You know, so if we had one of those 40-day seminars with Jesus and we wanted to say, well, here's a topic, you know, you would be surprised all the stuff he'd bring out of the prophets and Old Testament and uh, the New Testament that you never knew was there. But it was there. It's been there. And uh, so there's a lot more information than we think. It is an important topic. Now, church officers, what are they? A definition of church officer is a church officer is someone who has been publicly recognized as having the right and responsibility to perform certain functions for the benefit of the whole church. That's a good definition. That's what a church officer is, somebody who has been given this uh, right and responsibility. We talked about apostle uh, as one of the church officers in the New Testament. Apostles were very important. In the New Testament, a key verse for me on apostles is Ephesians 2. It says, the, uh, in him the whole building is joined together. Uh, in this case, the analogy is the church is a building. And in other places, the church is a body with different physical members. But there, it's more of an architectural image. And it says, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And it says, it's built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. All right? Now, there are a lot of different interpretations of that, but I read it as Scripture. To me, apostles and prophets, apostles plus prophets in that context equals the written Word of God. That's the foundation of the Scripture. So the Scripture of the church, as Scripture bears witness to Jesus Christ and to faith in Christ, that is the foundation of the church. And frankly, I think that's what Jesus meant when he said, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. I know that others say it's his confession, you are Christ the Son of God, but I think it's Peter. And not just Peter, but the other apostles, but not in the way the Catholics mean. Peter, in his role as eyewitness to Jesus, as that was proclaimed, and the other apostles did the same, and then it was written down, that's going to be the foundation of the whole structure. Everything else is going to be based on that apostolic testimony to Christ. I, that's my interpretation of it. I think it's a good one. Others you know, say it's his statement, and then everyone that can make the statement, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, is part of the church. That's okay, too. But at any rate, apostles. Now, what do we say about apostles? Grudem said, and I tend to agree, there aren't any anymore. I mean, not here on earth. They're up in heaven. Thank God they are still. They do still exist. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He is still the God of Peter and Paul and James and John. They're in heaven. But here on earth, I don't believe there are any apostles. Why not? That's it. The key word uh, is witness. That You had to be an eyewitness of Christ's resurrection and, uh, you know, in Acts 1, really, of his whole ministry. If you... Uh, you know, he really pushed it at that point of his whole ministry. But Paul would be excluded then. So at least this much was the case. Eyewitness of the resurrection. There are none of those alive today. <clears throat> so that's apostle. We talked about that last time. Now, we got, got into elder briefly. And what we said last time is uh, that, that the pattern in the New Testament, and this is what I believe as well, is that of a plurality of elders. Plurality of elders. What we mean by that is that in every local church, there is a group of people called elders. Okay? Other titles would be pastors, overseers, or bishops. Those are other titles for this. And we proved, I think, I think pretty conclusively from both Titus 1 
and Acts 20, especially those two chapters, that these titles are absolutely interchangeable. They're just at the beginning of the sentence, it's the one. At the end of the sentence, it's, it's the other. So therefore, it must be, they must just be interchangeable titles. You know, elder, you know, implies age. It does in the Greek and it does in the English both. But it's possible for Timothy to be an elder, you know, and, and not to be despised uh, or have anyone look down on him because he's young. So it's okay to have somebody who's chronologically young be an elder in the church. It just needs to have attained spiritual maturity. And he has to not be a new convert. We'll talk about all that. But the point is that there needs to be spiritual maturity, etc. So I, I think that the term elder is a good one. I think we're, if we're going to see any changes, we might advocate that that's what they would be called at this church and not so much pastors. There tends to be a tendency with pastor. What do you think of? When you think of a pastor, what do you think of? Say again? So like one pastor. So there's a single... Yeah, that's part of it. There's there's another aspect to it too, and what's that? Huh? Vocation. Vocation so that imply that connects to salary, money. Okay. Say again. Yeah. What about it? We're getting to it. We're getting to it, brother. Uh, that would be. Yeah, that's true. Um, that's on page four. So probably we'll even get to it tonight. Thank you for asking. Um, but right now, in terms of, of the spiritual leaders of the church, elders, you know, it's a good title. I think pastors would imply only those people who are drawing a salary. And see, for me, always there's been a concern of recognizing godly laymen who are mature and who I think should have the ability to lead. You realize the vocational aspect uh, uh, isn't universal. There, there are people that have jobs, like when Paul was a tent maker, etc., and they could hold down jobs and still be godly leaders in the church. Uh, what are they called? You know, and that's the thing that, that you, know, you really struggle with. Traditionally in Baptist churches, what are they called? Deacons. They're called deacons. That's right. But there you have a problem, okay, because deacons are generally presented simply as servants with no leadership role whatsoever. So we had that difficulty when we were wrestling the whole women deacon issue in our church. And I had to be extremely clear and say, as we understand deacons, traditionally, that's what we're dealing with here. We, we, I just wanted to separate out the issue of, as the New Testament understands deacons, can women be deacons in that respect? That's a different question. And I touched on it lightly when we got to Romans 16 with Phoebe, and I, and I went through all that. And we're going to go through it probably some more tonight. But um, here in this, in this church, if you look at our constitution, it's, it, it's not hard to say that deacons are basically lay leaders. They, they have a role to play of leadership in assisting the pastors to fulfill the, the function of the New Testament church. And so at that point, you know, there was an issue with women leading in the church. So at any rate, um, I think elders is a good title uh, for those leaders, uh, et cetera. Um, let's keep going. What are the functions of... Yes, Lynn. We are really not set up correctly as a New Testament in this church. Yeah, I, I think if we were, we wouldn't want to be... E- either we are set up and, and, the, and the document, the bylaws don't rightly reflect that, in which case we're illegal. You know, we, sh- we need to be set up according to our document, change the document. So I, long, long story short, I think the church is pretty well set up according to the document. Um, but I don't think it's as biblical as it should be. I think there should be a plurality of elders. I think there should be some identified lay leaders who have, in, in, at one level, in terms of decision-making and all that, equal authority to those that are receiving a salary from ministerial functions, et cetera. So we'll talk about that. Thank you for that question. All right. What are the functions of elders? What are they to do? All right. Well, to govern New Testament churches under the authority of Christ. 
Well, what do we mean by govern? Well, let's look at some verses. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of a double honor. So there's that, that word, rule. So they, have, they make decisions. They rule. They have, they have governing power. All right? Um, those that rule well should be considered worthy of double honor. Now, some people think that this word honor is meant to imply more than just respect and people think highly of them, but it might, the double honor, they already have one honor, and that is of being an elder in the respect of the church, but the second honor, the double honor, would be of a salary. Um, and so they're honored uh, by uh, being financially supported by the church. Many interpret First uh, Timothy 5.17 that way. May or may not be. I think that's probably a good interpretation. Um, but uh, that people should be able to make their living doing ministerial functions is easily proven from other passages of Scripture. You know, like, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. And he says it quite plainly and directly in, the, in those Corinthians passages. Whether it's being taught here, I'm not so sure. But one thing we do know is 1 Timothy 5.17 does tell us at least one function of elders is to rule. You see it? Elders who rule well. Now, the Presbyterians look at this and they make a division between elders of two types, teaching elders and ruling elders. So they actually have two different kinds of elders and the ruling elders make important decisions about the life of the church, etc., whereas the teaching ones, they teach. They teach the Word of God. And so... Um, you know, they separate the two entirely. First uh, Timothy 3, 4, and 5, again, uh, asking, you know, seeking to answer the question, what do elders do? Um, it says an overseer there, elder, must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Now, if you look at the end, care for God's church, if all you had was care for God's church, you might think about visiting people in the hospital looking after the sick, doing counseling, showing concern and compassion for the church in their, in their time of need. All of those things I consider to be pastoral functions, but I don't think that's what it's talking about here. What is it talking about here? How can you tell what it's talking about? It's talking about management. And what is the testing ground for godly elders? What's the proving ground? Let's put it that way. Their household. You look at their families. And some have commented that, you know, it's really not wise that search committees only interview the, the man, the candidate, who's going to be a pastor. They really probably ought to stay with the family for a week. They ought to live with them, you know, eat meals with them, huh? Yeah, <laughs> but just to have that, that observer, and what will he have to do to get his family ready for that? You need to be on your absolute best behavior, Okay. But you see the, the point of what I'm saying. The point is that his family is the proving ground. We need to see how, if his children are submissive to him, uh, if, if, if his wife respects him and honors him, if he treats her like Christ does the church, if their, their marriage is, is in good order, um, if the children are being discipled and trained and, and coming up in the faith, etc. So the proving ground of godly elders is the family. It's the home. Okay? Uh, but at any rate, the point we're making here is it's clear that at least one aspect of being an elder is management and that his relationship to the church will be at least somewhat similar to his relationship to his children. Now, obviously, there's not exact parallels there. There's clearly a different relationship, but we're talking about leading, uh, management, rulership, that kind of thing, making decisions. 
And so uh, you, you can learn a lot by observing how his children relate to him, he to his children, and, and et cetera. The proving ground of elders is the, uh, the marriage and the, and the family, the parent, parenting. So I think that's really important principle, isn't it? You know, where do your future elders come from, the ones in 10, 15 years? Well, they come from young men uh, who then get married and then they have babies and they grow up in that, into those responsibilities. And so what is the church's responsibility to them? Well, I think the older men are to help them be good husbands and good fathers and to make it through that proving ground, that training ground, so that we have a steady flow of good leaders. You know, it's funny when we talk about this whole woman deacon issue and how controversial all that was and how difficult. One of the points that was made to me early on said, you know, if we restrict deacons to only men, we won't have enough candidates. And I, I remember just being absolutely shocked by that. I said, now, do you realize what you just said? This church was established in 1845. You've been at it a long time, okay? And you're telling me you don't have enough men to lead? Shame on you. That's your job. You're supposed to be forming leaders. You're supposed to be training and getting them ready. And so we need to think like that too. Or shame on us. You know, we need to be working with the young men. We need to be helping them be godly husbands. We need to help them raise up their children in the fear and nurture of the Lord. That's the proving ground. Not, and not just so that the church can have good elders, but so that the, those families will be well ordered to the glory of God. The family was the first institution. The church came after. So that the families need to be healthy and all that. But you can see that connection. So, going back to what we're talking about, what does an elder do? He rules, he manages, in a similar way to the way he handles his family. So he makes, uh, you know, uh, decisions and and judgments about that. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3, To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to uh, to be revealed. So he's making an appeal to elders. And and what is his appeal? Well, um, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Well, now this brings in some other elements that are very important. He's going to be a leader. He's going to make decisions. He's he's going to say, you know, follow me, or this is the direction that we need to go. But how is he going to do it? Well, not in a, in a lordly sort of way, not lording it over those entrusted to him, but, but as a servant would. Our, our pattern has got to be Christ. How did Christ handle his position? To me, one of the most important verses in the whole Bible, for me as a, as a man, as a leader, as a husband, a father, as a pastor, is Jesus' statement after washing his disciples' feet, in which he says, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now, you just look at those verses, that statement. That's really important. We Americans tend to be very suspicious and negative toward authority. See, bumper stickers, question authority, like it's a bad thing. It is not a bad thing. Will God have authority in the new heaven and new earth? (laughs) You better believe he's going to have authority. He is authority. I mean, he can't get rid of it any more than he can get rid of his holiness. He just is in charge, okay? And that's just the way it is. And there was someone who challenged that, and he lost, okay? And we kind of got duped by him, and hence all the trouble, okay? But what are we being brought back into? A kingdom, and he is a king, and that's just the way it is. We, according to Daniel 7 and many other verses, we will rule under him. We will rule 
So we will have authority under his authority, right? We're just going to know how to do it by then. But the, the concept of structure and hierarchy and authority and all that is a good thing. We have been corrupted by Satan into thinking it's bad. We've also seen people who have done it poorly. And so therefore, we, we shy away from the whole topic. Godly elders are a gift to a local church. It's a good thing. Just like it's a good thing to have a godly husband who knows what it really means to be a husband and a godly father who knows what it really means to be a godly father. That's a, good, a gift to his family, to his wife and to his children. Now, what I get out of you call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, he's not shy to be teacher and Lord. He's not embarrassed about it. That's what he is. Rightly so, for that is what I am. And I'll never stop being that. But look what I did with it. What, what did he do with it? What did he do with teacher and Lord? He served them. He was down on his, on his... There was no job. There was nothing that he would not do for them that would help them in his mission, which is to make them pure and holy and perfect and get them ready for heaven, even to the point of dying on the cross. He would be as low as it took. How embarrassing is that? Stretched out on a cross like a criminal in front of everybody. That's what he would do to serve us. So you have to wonder, I mean, how low will he go? He'll go that low, and that's as low as it goes. Philippians 2, down, 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 even to the point of death, death on a cross. That's how low he goes. So for me, 1 Peter 5 is just more of the same. Not lording it over those, but being examples. You're serving, you're an example, but you are leading. And so for me, I think, you know, and, and this is the thing, I think God's people want to be led. I mean, I, I know that by the number of decisions that come to me on a daily basis. Tell me what to do. Here's this person. They need money. What should we do? Here's this other thing. Here's, should we go to this country or that country? You know, it's actually, a, I'm not complaining in any way, but it's a burden to be the one to have to make those decisions. And that's a burden we as leaders have to give to the Lord. But it's a good thing too, isn't it? Because other than that, we are, I don't know. We're not going everywhere on short-term missions. We're not going on to 75 countries. We can't do it. There's got to be some decisions made. And so it's a gift to a church to have godly men. And that's why I believe in plurality of elders because one person doesn't have the whole perspective. And it's like, what do you think? And let's pray together. And we ask the Lord and, and we, you know, back and forth. And then there's some good decisions that are made. Anyway, so to me, this is what an elder does. He governs the church under the authority of Christ. And that is under the authority of Christ. Isn't that what Peter says? Uh, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. No, is it, where is it? Maybe it's... Not lording it. No, it's later in First Peter. I mean, hang on. That's why I brought my Bible. Um, ah, here it is. It's the very next verse. And when the chief shepherd appears, then you will receive the crown of glory uh, that will never fade away. Who's the chief shepherd? Right. It's, it's not you, okay? <laughs> I mean, that's, it's Jesus. He's the chief shepherd. You're an under-shepherd. So, I mean, it's the very next verse. That's what he's saying. Okay? Let's turn the page. All right. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. A very important verse in church leadership. What is an elder to do according to Hebrews 13, 17? Now, I acknowledge that elder isn't mentioned there. It says leaders. Okay? But we've learned from other places in the New Testament what they're called in the church. They're at least called elders. So um, what is an elder to do according to Hebrews 13, 17? Give instructions, okay. 
Do they have any authority? Well, they do, because the word is obey, okay, and submit. So those are authoritative words. So there is an authority to elders, um, and there's a submission there. What else do you learn that an elder has to do? Ah, that's very interesting, isn't it? It's of intense interest to me. I want to know what the Lord means by that. <laughs> like, if you're, like, messing up in your life, how much am I accountable for that, you know? And that's, and that's an important thing for me to ask especially when you've got a church this big. And I know you probably, some of you have been in churches much bigger than this. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying 400 people is a lot to look after, 450. You know, that's a lot of people. And so I, I need to know, I want to know what is my accountability. I was meeting with somebody um, last week on the issue of, uh, of infant baptism versus believer baptism. And she was saying, well, why do I have to resolve this and all that? And can I just come and receive the benefit of your ministry? And I said, yes and no. Okay, you can certainly come listen to the preaching and, you know, I'll be friendly to you in the hall and all that and, we'll, you know, I'll, if you ask me questions, whatever. But I will not shepherd you in the same way that I would if you become a member. See, because if you become a member, I consider myself accountable in a Hebrews 13, 17 sense. So if you want me to do that for you, you need to be baptized because we're a Baptist church. <laughs> That's how that works. Okay, so we talked that through, but I, there's a shepherding that goes on. And to me, this is a weighty thing, isn't it? It's a weighty thing. Now, if the church is rebellious, fractious, you know, uh, independent, doing whatever they want, suspicious of their leaders and all that, what does this verse say about that? Yeah, it's going to be a burden. How is that a burden? I mean, that pastor is going to be he's going to be busy dealing with those issues and right. it's something that can actually take away from his ministry. Yeah, I mean, he wants to have an outreach. He wants to do some things. Evangelism, people don't come. They don't do what he says. You know, he, he says, this is, this is what the scripture says. They say, no, it isn't, or I don't care what the Bible says. What do you think is going to happen ultimately? What's the end of all that? What's going to happen in the end? Chaos. They're not going to listen. What's he going to do? He's going to leave. Or they're going to get rid of him either way. <laughs> either he's going to want to or they're going to want to. But sooner or later, they have lost. And remember I said a moment ago, godly elders are a gift to the church. They just lost a gift. And are they going to get another godly leader? Well, after a while, a church develops a reputation. Believe me, okay? And uh, so do you really want to come? Uh, you know, if you're a candidate, you're going to ask, what happened to your last pastor? What's his phone number? <laughs> What's, I want to talk to him. I want to find out what happened. It's a two-way street. It's definitely a two-way street. It's not just the search committee looking at the individual. The individual is looking at the church. And so it would be of no advantage to you to chew up and spit out your godly leaders. Okay? Why? Because you need godly leaders. That's, that's the implication of the verse, isn't it? It's of no advantage to you means you need this. You need it done. You need good sermons preached. You need a good church structure and a good environment around you. You need spiritual gifts going on. You need church discipline. You need good leadership to be everything God wants you to be. So if you are fractious and rebellious and don't obey and submit and all that, you're going to churn these guys out. They're going to leave. And then you're going to get what? Well, it's interesting what you'll get. You know, you'll get different kinds of sermons. You'll get a different kind of leader, if leader he is. Um, and, and it would be of no advantage to you. Anyway, so what is an elder to do? From this, these verses and others, he is to lead. Okay, we get that. Also, he is to shepherd the people of God, namely to care for their souls. Now, we touched on that in Hebrews 13, 17. 1 Peter 5, 2 already mentions that, but also Acts 20 is even stronger. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of God of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. 
What do you think that means? Keep watch over yourselves. Keep watch over yourselves. For yourself. Like uh, uh, Paul says to Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely. That's what you need to watch. See, those are the two things I'm watching all the time. My life and my doctrine. And it's amazing how the two are meshed. Isn't it incredible how if you start compromising a certain area, you start preaching and teaching differently? Because why? Because you don't want to be a hypocrite. And so if you're not being personally holy, if you're not, you know, if things are going on in your marriage or other things are happening, all of a sudden you're not going to preach the same way. You're going to, you're going to take a different approach. You're, you're going to avoid those passages or you're going to preach it differently. So the two are meshed. You've got to watch over yourselves, but that's not all it says. What else is it? Keep watch over yourselves what? And the flock. Well, there it gets really complicated, all right? So for me, in our church covenant, it says, we will watch over one another in brotherly love. I think that's a very serious thing. And I think it is one another. I don't think it's just I'm to watch over everybody. Frankly, I think my number one responsibility is to be sure that everybody's watching over one another. Because when you develop a heightened awareness of how responsible you are for your brother, your sister, listening to them, because you can be in places, 400 places the pastor can't be. You can be listening to, to stuff they'll never tell the pastor, Okay. And at that point, if we all take responsibility for each other's spiritual health, then that's important. So for me, I think the number one thing is to set a culture or, or an atmosphere of watching over one another in brotherly love and to, te- and to root that in Scripture so that we really take responsibility. That if a brother or sister's drifting away from God, you are going to go. You're going to pray. You're going to act. It's going to be important to you. It matters that they haven't been to Sunday school in four weeks or they haven't been to church in a while. That's, it's going to matter to you. Anyway, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock, even from your own number. Men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Boy, is there an intensity there. Warning night and day with tears. What is the threat? Well, false teachers here, savage wolves coming in, that kind of thing. So there's an intensity here that elders are going to shepherd the flock and they're going to watch over the flock and they're going to look out for them. They're going to watch the life and the doctrine of the flock closely, not just their own. You know, if somebody's bringing in a teaching that's not right, he's going to be there and, uh, and, and talk about it and you know, refuted. As a matter of fact, Titus, one of the requirements is that you should be able to refute those who teach falsely. You've got to know the scriptures well enough to do that or else you can't be an elder. All right. Thirdly, he is to teach the word of God. He's a teacher of the word of God. First uh, Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So, by the way, remember how I mentioned that the Presbyterians use that verse to separate into two offices. I, I don't see a separation there, do you? Especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So it's all one. In other words, the same one that's laboring in preaching and teaching might also rule well. So I think it's, it's all one. But I do not believe that every elder will do the primary preaching and teaching in a church. I think you can be an elder and not ever preach a sermon. I think that's fine. But you need to be able to teach. That is one of the requirements of elder being an elder. So to teach the word of God is required, I think. Ephesians 4.11, it says, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. Literally, pastor teachers. Uh, 1 Timothy 3.2, now the overseer 
uh, must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. This is a key distinction between this office and that of deacon. Uh, there's never a requirement for deacons to be able to teach. You don't need to be able to teach. It's not part of the office. Uh, but here it is. Why is it important for the elder to be able to teach? Because basically that's the center of the ministry is taking the word of God and bringing it home to somebody's life. And don't just think in a formal setting. It could be just over coffee at a restaurant or whatever and the person's bringing an issue and you need to be able to bring the word of God to bear on that issue. So an elder must be able to teach the word of God. Titus 1.9 puts it in a hostile setting and we are in a hostile setting. Never forget that. Satan is against us. And one of the number one things he wants to do is contradict every topic of systematic theology. All of them. We're in chapter 47. He'd like to get them all. And all the subpoints too. So he's just churning out all kinds of chaff all the time. And so don't think, well, will I have to refute false teaching? Fully expect to. I mean, that's what we have to do. And it's not necessarily the case that people in the church are teaching or whatever, but they're hearing it, they're exposed. So in your sermons and your teachings, you have to know what people are saying that it's against this so, and, and confront it and deal with it. So Titus 1.9 says, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So you see the two aspects of the teaching, positive and negative. They're bound up in two words, encourage and refute. Do you see it? We've got encourage. Sound doctrine is incredibly encouraging, isn't it? I mean, it's incredibly encouraging. I was so encouraged by the book of Romans. All of the things there are in there that are just so encouraging. We're studying Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven, uh, on our Sunday evening uh, home fellowship. Very encouraging. Isn't it encouraging to know where you're going to spend eternity? My goodness, if that doesn't encourage you, nothing will, all right? You know, my, my feeling is that is so encouraging. So we need to encourage people by sound doctrine. What's so encouraging about it is that it's all true. It's not a myth. It's not a fantasy. It's not a wish or hope, you know, in the way we usually use that word hope. No, it is sound doctrine and therefore it's true. Isn't it wonderful to know that God has seen you with holy eyes? He knows everything about you and he has forgiven you completely and loved you and adopted you. Isn't that wonderful? Sound doctrine. But there's also a negative side. You can't just teach what's right. If you're a pastor, as a teacher, a preacher, you cannot just be positive. There, is, there are pastors who, whose goal in their ministry is just to be positive all the time. I call them false teachers. They are. They're false teachers. You know why? Because they are systematically avoiding those topics that will bring division and dissension. Systematically avoiding them. And my feeling is you definitely can't be an expositional preacher, okay? You're going to be skipping and, you know, moving and snaking through, sliding around. But I also think about what Jesus said when he said, woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that's how they spoke of the false prophets. You know, what kind of person is everybody going to speak well of? Even the godly people will speak well of them unless they're aware of this issue that I'm bringing up. Because they're saying right things that everyone agrees with. You know, and you can listen to their sermons. You can go online and you can listen to their sermons. And I think you can get through the whole 30 minutes or more of it and not disagree with anything the man said. He's made it a science to go through and make sure there's nothing in the sermon that most people who are not weird or perverted will disagree with. But he's going to avoid all those hot button ones. My friends, there must be a refuting aspect to an elder's ministry. Okay? 
Um, it was interesting. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I think it was just that first generation. Once the apostles were dead, the last one being John, I believe, tradition has it, John, the one who wrote Revelation, that the apostolic era was over. But, you know, we should not imagine that the apostolic ministry has ended because we still are benefiting from Paul's writings and Peter's writings and all that. I just read a verse from Peter. and So it's still an apostolic ministry, but he did give some to be apostles and prophets. So, go ahead. Um, I definitely believe there are evangelists today. I cannot say definitively whether there are still prophets, okay? Because we don't have the definition of of prophet like we do with apostle that's linked to eyewitness, you see. Prophets are just those that speak forth the word of God authoritatively saying, thus says the Lord and out comes the word. I personally have never experienced a prophetic ministry, but I have been in a room with people who thought they were doing it. So there you go. Okay, that's pretty controversial. But that doesn't mean that just because it wasn't happening in that room that it didn't happen anywhere else in the world. That I won't say. I want to be sure there's scripture under me when I make that statement, and I can't find that scripture under me. I'm not a cessationist. You know, by that, cessationist says, I'm not agnostic about this. I believe the Bible teaches that these gifts will end in our lifetime. You know, well, I I just don't, you know, I mean, before our lifetime. I think they believe it ended in the apostolic era. All those miracles, all that stuff. Well, I, I don't believe it. Can I ask one more question? Sure, sure. You know the apostles were all men. Did the prophets and the evangelists also have to be called? No, there were, there were female prophets, definitely. Um, for example, Philip had seven unmarried daughters who prophesied. That's in the New Testament. So what's the difference between prophecy and teaching? There's a very big difference. Prophecy, you open your mouth and out comes the word of God. You know? And frankly... You could be anybody and anyone and in any situation. I mean, Saul, in all of his rebellion, opened his mouth and prophesied. And so it said, is Saul also among the prophets? That was a proverb. It's like, how could that be? And I I, want to say this with with all respect and not be misunderstood. But Balaam's donkey prophesied, okay? Believe me, I'm not comparing Balaam's donkey to females, okay? Please. I mean, it's amazing the stuff that gets said. You said it, I didn't, and I don't think it, okay? So let's move on. But what I am saying is Balaam's donkey at least shows us a key principle, and that is that God can use anybody to prophesy. Another good example is Caiaphas. Remember when Caiaphas said it is beneficial for one to die and the whole nation not perish? John says he, as high priest that year, he prophesied concerning the Christ. God controlled his words so that they just perfectly describe substitutionary atonement. Yes, go ahead. Well, that is a very special kind of prophecy. And it's a very distinctive one because God's the only one who can do it. He's the only one who knows the future. And therefore, it has a special place in our understanding of prophecy. But I think it would be... Sorry? So I was about to say, you said Saul, Apollo, and the Bible, that came the word of God. Yeah. No, see, I think, I think it could have to do with the future, but I, I don't think it has to. It's just whatever God wants to say through you. He could be talking about the past. He'd be talking about a thousand years ago. He could talk about a thousand years in the future. It's all the same to him. He, he knows it all. So he can comment on something that happened a thousand years ago. He could say next week there's going to be a famine. He could say, I mean, he could say anything, whatever he chooses. He's very talkative. I mean, the Bible is full of all of God's word. Look at all that he said. He has a lot to say. Isaiah 1 says, Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth. 
for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. That's a prophecy. It had it passed. I reared, past tense, children and brought them up, past tense, but they have rebelled, past tense, against me. That's a prophecy. Basically, anything that's, that someone can say, thus says the Lord, and out it comes. Um, so, a woman can do it, a man can do it, a child could do it, a donkey can do it, an evil person, Caiaphas can do it, anybody can do it. What's the difference between that and teaching? Well, teaching, you take existing prophecies that are written, the Bible, apostles and prophets, you open it up and using skills that you have been trained in, using judgment, using your maturity and your personality, you discern principles and then speak about them in, in an organizing, organized way. It's just a different function. And so for me, they're just two different things. Paul does not forbid women to prophesy. He does forbid them to teach men. And we're not getting to that tonight, but that's to me, there's a distinction there. There's just a big difference between prophecy and teaching. Now, I can speculate as to why he restricted women from teaching men, but he didn't restrict women from prophesying to men. I can, spe I can speculate about that, but it would be speculation. The Bible doesn't tell us why, but it does say that the restriction's in place. Yes? I'm sure I understand what you just said. <laughs> so a prophet, we're to, we can recognize one who proclaims to be a prophet by them exclaiming, thus says the Lord, and then whatever comes out their mouth would be prophecy. Pretty much. I think they also have to be identified as prophets. By how? How? Did, and that's what's going to be my next question. Well, in Deuteronomy, if what they say comes true, and that's where I told you that predicting the future is a special kind of prophecy. So if Jesus says not one stone will be left on another, everyone will be thrown down. If that never happens, then he's a false prophet. But he's not because Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed. Yeah, go ahead. It seems that in Scripture, the, pro the, the words of God, what's more important in, in reference to prophets is that the prophecy be judged, right? Oh, yeah. Not so much the prophet, and I don't know why, like you're saying that's the case, yeah. but the prophecy seems to be what determines the truth, not mm -hmm. the person speaking. Well, to some degree, to some degree. There's some things you just can't test. They get tested by time. When Agabus got up and said there's going to be a famine in the entire Roman world, that might be or it might not. It can't be tested by the existing body of doctrines. It's a prediction of the future. You'll know that it comes, you know, that it's true whether it happens or not. <laughs> it's that simple. But if they, uh, the leaders uh, get out and say something, um, you know, what happened was in 1 Corinthians 14, I think it is, and also in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, it says, do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything Hold on to what is good. Avoid every form of evil. So you look at 1 Thessalonians 5, you see what I'm talking about. So a prophecy would come out and it was to be weighed, it was to be assessed, it was to be tested. How? By the canon, the rule of Scripture or of existing prophecies that everybody recognized as prophetically true. For example, when the Apostle Paul would write a letter before the New Testament canon had been decided in 4th century, whenever it was, you just knew that Paul's writings were authoritative. If the, if the prophet spoke contrary to something Paul said, then it was considered false. So basically, you know, it, a good example of this, Roman 12, Romans 12 says, um, you know, if your gift is such and such, then do this. If it's that, then do that. Go ahead and look, Romans 12, you'll see what I'm talking about. Um, In Revelation what? 
study. Right, right. In, in the Bible study, yeah. Was I prophesying? Is that what you asked me? No, not you. Okay, no. Yes, yeah. He, the angels did, yes. I have never prophesied, but I've done a lot of teaching. You know, it's funny. The Puritans use the word differently. Um, they, to them, prophesying was preaching. So um, if a, if a uh, pastor, like William Perkins, wrote a book called The Art of Prophesying, and it really is homiletical. It's about preaching, how to preach effectively. Um, I just don't think that that's an accurate use of the word. I mean, it takes boldness to take the Puritans on, let me tell you. Um, but I just don't think that that's, I think that's, that's teaching. I think that's preaching. I think it's a different word, kerygma, you know, the proclamation. I think that's it. Prophesying is something else. I don't think you want to confuse them. But in Romans 12, it says we have different gifts um, according to the grace given us. I'm in 12.6. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith, the NIV gives us. But I actually don't think that's a good translation. I think basically what it's saying is if a man's gift is prophesying, let him speak according to the analogy of the faith. Analogia is the, is the Greek word. And so what it is is it has to line up with the others. It has to line up with what's true and been revealed by God. So if, you've got, if you're a prophet, be sure that what you say lines up. All right? We're not flipping the whole paradigm because you spoke, okay? <laughs> you get up and you say something, and now we understand everything differently, you're most likely a false prophet. Okay, so what happened in 1 Corinthians 14, I think it is, two or at least most three prophets should speak one at a time. Just because you have a prophecy from God does not mean you just blurt it out. I couldn't help it. God took me over. He said, no, the spirit of the prophets is subject to the control of the prophets. They can wait because God does everything decently in good order. He'll give you a word and then it's up to you when you say it. So you wait, okay? And then when it's your turn, you get up and you speak. All right, two or at most three means let's not have 500 prophecies. All right, there's only so much the soul can hear, okay? So just a little at a time. But the others should weigh carefully what's said and give an, uh, an authoritative judgment on that prophecy. And that's where he says women should be silent in the church. And what's interesting is people take it out of context. They forget what's, what's being discussed there. They're saying women should never talk in the church. That's not, I think, what he's saying. I think context is king there. What he's saying is women should not participate in the weighing and deciding about the prophecies because that really is an authoritative function, you see? So if a man gets up and speaks and then the woman says that's not accurate, she's really an authority over him and over his word. So therefore, I think elders, actually there it's other prophets. So the other prophets have that. But in my interpretation of that women should be silent in the church passage, what I think is happening is that a woman could be a prophet, prophetess, I think we would say, but she's not going to do the weighing of the prophecies. That's got to be done by the other male prophets. That's what I get out of that. How we got into this, I don't know. But uh, at any rate, um, prophet. prophet is not one of the offices of the church, okay? Elder and deacon is, okay? Anyway, but I think it's important because we, we're not going to get to the whole woman thing tonight, but we've touched on it some. And to me, it has always been important to make a distinction between prophecy and teaching. Because it's clear in the New Testament that women were prophets. So then you can say, well, why? Well, ask God when you get there, okay? If you ask me for my opinion, I'll give you my opinion, but it's just my opinion. But that it's a fact is easy to prove from Scripture. That women prophesied, you can prove. And that women were restricted from teaching men, you can prove. Those things are there. They're plain on the text. Why it's the case, who knows? I mean, God has his reasons. All right? Let's, all right, so we've talked about the functions. What are the qualifications uh, for elders. Well, this should be very familiar. I mean, we read this just about every time someone gets ordained. 
We read it at the time of elections or, or uh, you know, other things, functions of elders and deacons and all that. But here it is. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Here is a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. What is the function of that verse? That's an important verse. What's the function of that verse? If anyone sets his heart on being an elder, he desires a noble task. What's the purpose of that verse in the life of the church? They should desire it. Are they an elder yet? According to that verse, not yet. So what does this do? What, I talked about this earlier tonight. It stirs up young men to set a godly ambition and goal in front of them. I'm not ready to be an elder now, but I want to be in 10 years. What do I need to do? What do I need to do? How can I, and you put yourself in the hands of some that are elders and say, how can I grow? How can I be a man? I want to be a leader. What do I have to do? We have to be able to teach. Well, I'm not able to teach. Well, then get that way. Nobody's born able to teach. I know there's gifting, but you have to have a body of knowledge, a body of doctrine, okay? How do I do that? Well, I stir myself up. I learn, I, whatever. I put myself in the hands of a godly mentor, a teacher, whatever. So if you desire to be an elder, you know, you desire a noble thing, okay? That's what he's, he's getting at. I think it's an important verse. You can overlook it. But what it does is it creates a, a mill, a machine that cranks out candidates over the life of the church, which is 2,000 years now, okay? We need another generation coming up to take our place. And they need to be being formed right now. You know? So if you set your heart on that, it's a good thing. Number uh, Verse 2, it says, Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall into the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Boy, there's a lot there. I mean, there's a lot of, of qualifications. Yes. He doesn't have any fun. Um, do you have a concordance at home? Look up the word fun. Okay, go ahead and look it up. See if you can find a verse that uh, talks about it. Huh? What's that? Oh, is it? Okay. There is joy. There is blessedness. There's happiness. I just can't find fun. You know, I don't know what it was that motivated me to do that. Probably being parents of teens, I suppose. No offense. I'm not trying to, you know. But dad, I got to have fun. It's like, show me in the Bible where fun is a Christian virtue. Okay. <laughs> at any rate, moving on. Uh, let's look at it. Uh, overseer must be above reproach. What does that mean? No outstanding cases. All right. It really has to do with reputation, which it gets to later on. But, but this person is such and such a kind of person. I don't think you want him as an elder. So above reproach means, does it mean perfect? Like sinlessly perfect? Why not? How do you know it doesn't mean that? Above reproach does not mean, does not equal sinlessly perfect. <laughs> Yes, remember, God does want to give to the church godly leaders, okay? He has not, it seemed, given perfect people. So therefore, there must be some imperfect people who can be godly leaders. And, and frankly, that's, I, you get that just out of New Testament doctrine. First John 1, uh, it says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with Jesus Christ and the blood of Christ purifies us from every sin. Now you meditate on the present tense, purifies. It's continuing to purify us 
from every sin. How is it then that you can walk in the light as he is in the light and need that ongoing purification? If you don't know, brothers and sisters, you haven't been a Christian long, okay? You know you can. You can be genuinely walking with Jesus and yet know that you're doing wrong things. And the Spirit convicts you and you say, I'm sorry, you confess it. 1 John 1, 9, he cleanses you. You ask forgiveness of, of whoever it is you've offended, usually your wife or husband. And then having done that, you're in reconciled uh, relationship and you go on. Okay, you can walk in the light and still need forgiveness. Therefore, we're not looking for perfect people. But we are looking for people who are above reproach. All right, sin has not taken root in their lives in an obvious, conspicuous way. They don't have these problems. And, and then they get specific about some other things too, but just generally above reproach. Good reputation as a godly person. You need to look at them and say they're godly. They love Jesus. They're walking well with Christ. They're imitating him. All right, it says the husband above one wife. Let's talk about that now. Okay, it's later in the outline, but I'm going to talk about it now. There are different ways to interpret that. What would one way be? What would, Lynn, what would one way be to interpret that? You must treat the husband as one wife and a single man. Okay, that's a question. All right, can a single man? So you've got to have a wife, okay? Husband of but one wife, all right? Uh, they stuck the word but in there, meaning implying no more than one, Okay. So that's a translation decision that they're trying to help you understand what it means, but it's an interpretation. Frankly, all translations are interpretations. What are some other interpretations of husband of one wife? What's that? Not a polygamist, which of which there are some. It's illegal in our country, but it's not illegal in other countries. And it wouldn't have been illegal in a lot of the countries Paul was dealing with there. Africa was an issue. I remember when I went to Kenya and other places, you know, there, there are still polygamous people there. And so they, they can't be. That's another interpretation. Frankly, Wayne Grudem leans on that one. Another kind of more spiritual or godly kind of interpretation in this sense is a one-woman man is what it literally says. And this is a man who is satisfied with God's provision for him sexually. That's one way you could look at it. And you could say, is that really what it's saying? Well, can a single person be... Uh, and elders. Some churches say no. They just, because, you know, you said, they would say to me, that the home and the family is the proving ground for elders. So how can the person's untested? They're unproven. Right? If you're going to get really literalistic then, can a widow, a widower be an elder? He is no longer the husband of one wife, right? So, but think about it. I mean, he is husband. Is he any longer the husband of one wife? You know, you say, well, she's up in heaven. Well, if you strictly read what Jesus says, they'll be like the angels in, in heaven. He's not married to her anymore. And frankly, even the, uh, even the uh, marriage vows imply that, that when one of you dies, it's done. It's finished. So, no, he is not the husband of one wife if she dies. And, and we talked about this. Somebody, somebody said, can single people? And we went to this whole thing. I said, let's say I get in a car accident and Christy gets killed. See, and I, not only do I lose my wife, I lose my ministry in the same day. You know, n nobody embraces that, but that's what happens with a technical interpretation of husband and one wife. If you're going to say, well, that's what it says. Okay, if you're going to push it, then, then widowers cannot be. You've got to have a wife by your side in order to be an elder. So anyway, that's where you get into. This is a really interesting phrase, husband and one wife. Yes, go ahead. Uh, one, wife at a time. Was... one wife at a time. No more than one wife at a time. That's where they stuck the word but in. Speaking of four. Right. So Right. Again, there's an interesting issue, and many think that's what it's talking about, at least in part. Okay. So they're saying if this man is divorced, he cannot be, um, you know, an elder. 
And, uh, you know, traditionally that is a, a valid, you know, and I, I actually tend to embrace that in a different way. I embrace it in this sense that clearly there is a concern over the man's home life. See what I'm saying? I mean, that at least just systematically, as you look at these verses, there's a number of references to how he carries himself at home. And if he can't manage his family well, how can he manage the church? They, you know, they're talking about his children, but wouldn't it be even more significant concerning his wife? He did not handle his marriage well. And so therefore, how is he going to manage the church? It's, it's really not husband of one wife that leads me away from divorced men. It's more managing the home well. Any divorced person will probably acknowledge, if they're a mature Christian, will acknowledge that they did not handle their marriage well, even if the other person was at fault, clearly at fault. Let's say there were things I did wrong. My goodness. I mean, after one day of marriage, you're going to be saying that if you're an honest person, male or female. Have you handled the last 24 hours well? Well, not really. (laughs) Okay? So there's no perfect marriages, etc. What is this saying? Well, there's lots of discussion about it. Um, You know, and I, I don't think it's easy finally to resolve. At least this much I'm going to say is that the way that the man conducts himself in his marriage matters. And I, this much I want to say, he has got to be sexually pure. He's got to be satisfied with his wife. He's got, to, he's got to be a one-woman man. We talked about this at the deacon meeting last night with the book by Steve Farrar, Point Man. He's got to be a godly individual who's not roaming. He's not wandering. He's, he's satisfied with his wife. Okay? Um, let's stop here and uh, pick it up, God willing, next time. So... Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for this time we've had to study and to understand more about leadership of the church. God, I pray that you would continue to give our church godly leaders. I pray that in 2007, as we look more actively at this question of leadership of the church, um, I pray that you would guide us, O Lord, to make our constitution and bylaws line up as best as we know how with the scripture. And I pray that you would give to us godly elders, O Lord, who are identified by the church as such, Father, I pray that you'd help us to work through all of the issues connected with that, how the ministerial staff relate to lay elders and how that all happens, how the first elders would be chosen. Um, Lord, what an interesting road is ahead of us. But Lord, it's well worth it because the leadership of the church is very, very important and very vital. I pray, Lord, that you would please help us to be faithful. Help me uh, to be faithful, O oh Lord, and to live up to these, uh, this very high calling that's laid out in Scripture. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.